0: Good evening. Welcome to episode 25 of the Political Mike podcast. Uh, this evening, I'm so um, grateful to have with me a very senior um, political uh, veteran and political analyst, uh, Mr. Jeff Greenfield. Um, Mr. Greenfield uh, is a veteran, uh, political savvy individual. He is a senior analyst. He was a senior analyst for CNN. Uh, he served as its lead analyst for its coverage of the primaries conventions, presidential debates, and election nights, as well as presidential funerals and Supreme Court confirmation hearings. Mr. Greenfield has also reported on the media culture and trends of cable news network. Um, th- though the five time Emmy Award winner uh, reporter has taken him, has taken reporting has taken him to locales around the world from South Africa to Japan to Europe, he is principally known for his coverage of domestic politics and media. He has served as a floor reporter or anchor booth analyst for national conventions going back to 1988. He has twice been named TV Guide's all-star team as best political commentator and was cited by the Washington Journalism Review as the best in the business for his media analysis. Before joining CNN, Mr. Greenfield was the political and media analyst for ABC News uh, between the years 1983 to 1997, appearing primarily on Nightline and delivering weekly commentaries for World News Sunday. He was the media commentator for CBS News between 1979 to 1983. Mr. Greenfield has also appeared on William F. Buckley's Firing Line and PBS We Interrupt this week. He was the anchor of PBS CEO Exchange, a limited run series for five seasons. Mr. Greenfield, a native of New York City, graduated with honors from the University of Wisconsin, where he was editor-in-chief of the Daily Cardinal. Um, He is an honors graduate of, of the Yale Law School, where he was a A note and comment editor for the Yale Law Journal. Following law school, Mr. Greenfield worked as a speechwriter in the Senate office and in in the 1968 presidential campaign of Robert F. Kennedy. He then worked as chief speechwriter for New York Mayor John Lindsay. Greenfield spent seven years uh, with famed political consultant David Garth and wrote books and magazine articles as well. Um, He's written many uh, books, some of which uh, include uh, alternative history books, uh, such as if Kennedy lived, which takes into account uh, specific uh, historical events that would have played out if uh, President Kennedy was not assassinated on November 23rd, 1963. Mr. Greenfield, I'm so honored to have you with me today, sir. Um, And especially in light of so much going on. Um, First of all, I wanna get you You tweeted on uh, January the 6th um, that today, which was the day that the uh, Trump supporters had stormed the Capitol building was the day that Trump became president of the United States. A Um, joke. Michael,
1: that was a joke. Oh, Um, no, no. The point being that uh, after one of Trump's first speeches, Van Jones on CNN said, this is the day that Donald Trump became president. And it's become a a meme. It's become a source of great mockery. Every time Trump says something halfway uh, sane, somebody kind of pointing to Van, today's the day Donald Trump became president. So uh, I understand why you might have been reading that one way, but it was definitely tongue very, 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 very in cheek as if to say, okay, I now I understand that this guy's never going to become president in the sense that a normal president would. So I just wanted to clear the decks
0: on that. So in addition to the, the impeachment uh, trial that took place today, making Donald Trump the, second, the first U.S. president to be impeached twice in American history. Um, There's also been some talk of uh, Senator Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz being expelled from the Senate uh, with a two-thirds vote. Um, Do you think that this would make them victims uh, to their base or to Trump supporters?
1: It's a fantasy. Ted Cruz may be the single most disliked in the U.S. on general personality grounds. Uh, Lindsey Graham once said if Somebody murdered, Ted Cruz. somebody murdered Ted Cruz on the floor of the Senate and the trial was in the Senate, you'd get a conviction. He's the kind of person about whom it's even his best friend to understand him. But the idea that 67 senators uh, would require, it's the same as for impeachment, you, you need 18 senators in every um, Democrat to expel. It's just like it's a war. So, while there's a lot of pushback against the behavior of Hawley and, uh, and even among their fellow Republicans, there's these two incredibly anxious guys. Hawley barely hit the Senate when he started running for president, hinting at running for president. Cruz did the same thing. That's just not going to happen. Um, uh, you know, it's probably w- the same reason why will not be convinced when the impeachment trial goes to the Senate, you may find, unlike the first time, when only Mitt Romney among Republicans voted to convict, you may get a few few Republicans. I think offhand of, you know, five or six, that I would not be at all surprised to see vote conviction, possibly including uh, Leader McConnell, but you're not going to get 18 senators uh, to convict Trump unless unless they find something else that we don't know about yet, and you're not going to find 18 senators. The two guys out of the sense, just, you know, um, as I said,
0: it's a bridge too far. So, you know, what was uh, a really big uh, revelation overnight was that um, sources had confirmed to um, major news news outlets that, uh, uh, for now, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was pleased with uh, the Democrats' push for impeachment. Um, when I heard of that, I thought this was a really fast, cheap way to kind of turn the page from Trump, uh, officially, um, being that with this conviction, he would be barred from running for public office again, um, closing the books, um, on Trump, uh, Trump's chances in 2024. In your reasoning, why do you think that Mitch McConnell seems to be open to the idea of, you know, having a conviction for Trump in the Senate? Knowing that there could be po- political backlash from his supporters in the midterms in 2022
1: and in 2024. Well, uh, the conviction necessary Trump from running again—that's a separate decision. If the Senate were to vote to convict, they take a second vote on what punishment is, um, and require a simple majority. Um, sometimes people are impeached and removed, and, and it doesn't happen. Uh, Congressman named C. a federal judge and removed. But they did that put He wound up going. He wound up becoming a member of the House. I think But I think you're right. McConnell is basically saying we got We got rid of Trump if we're going to move. Um, you know things. McConnell got exactly what he wanted from Donald Trump. He got uh, a rigidly conservative six vote in the Supreme Court. He got like federal judges many of whom were young and won't be there for decades. He's fundamentally reshaped the federal bench for a while. And he got his tax cuts for people and, you know, less regulation. But now, uh, what is Trump? The guy who lost re-election, helped his party lose the, the uh, Senate, and has just committed, uh, if not a impeachable offense, uh, an outrageous uh, bit of behavior that sort of stains the party. I think what McConnell was doing, if he didn't th- us, he dragged him out of the street. And basically, he said to his fellow senators, "Unlike the first impeachment, where I been, I was, he was very tough, saying nobody vote for conviction, and Romney did. This ain't vote your conscience." Um, do I? He thinks that Trump is actually get convicted? No, because as I say, the numbers seem. You know, once you get past five or six, once you get past Romney, Murkowski. Um, maybe Ben Sass, maybe Susan Collins, maybe Pat Toomey, maybe John Thune. Once you get past six, it's kind of hard to get um, or But the last couple of times we've had impeachments. Um, Clinton uh, didn't have a summer vote again uh, And Trump only had one. So if five or six Republicans join the Democrats and say, yeah, well, this guy committed an offense, it would be a significant political message. And I think McConnell would be happy uh, to see that kind of diversity. Um, remember, Michael, senators by and large have more freedom than their House members because House members come increasingly districts, heavily democratic, heavily Republican. So for a lot of these Republicans, they're not worried about worried about November, worried about the primary. And Trump is enormously popular. Uh, he's had some uh, erosion, but he still has very high approval numbers among Republicans. And these guys from deep districts are not about to, to play games with their future. Somebody like, ben Sass, somebody like, like uh, Pat Toomey, not running again, or Murkowski, who once ran and won as an independent after the Republican Party dunk, tried to dump her. they got more independents. Um, and, and so I think you'll see some of them following McConnell's lead.
0: So, um, one major um, topic of conversation that's been thrown around a lot, um, whether it be on you know daytime television shows like The View or uh, late night political show commentator shows, is that there's seems to be a split within the Republican Party, uh, where you can have a Trump America First Party emerging from the uh, ashes of of the Trump presidency, um, and you can have the traditional conservative Republican Party. Um, that's for lower uh, lower taxes, fiscal conservative policy, strong military. Um, I know that the idea, you know, speaking with folks who were alive back then um, in during the 1976 primary where Reagan challenged Gerald Ford, uh, that there was thought back then that the Republican Party could split. Reagan, of course, was seen as too conservative um, of a candidate. Ford was the moderate. But of course, that never happened. Um, is this another one of those scenarios where there's talk or understanding that the the party can split, but it doesn't.
1: Yeah, we hear that um, on and off, uh, depending on what period you're talking about. But I think think even though there's going to be a lot of tension in the Republican Party between the Trumpers um, and the more old line folks who went along because they didn't really have a choice because the primary for Trump, uh, and said, "Okay, we'll stay with Trump. He'll give us what we want—the judges, the taxes." Um, but I, my own feeling is that that uh, it's going to be very hard for any Republican to try to, for instance, seek the presidency in 2024 by explicitly saying we've got to move beyond Trump. It, it it's less unlikely because of Trump's behavior—the last the, the speech, the role, all of that. But you look at what happened in the House today, there were ten Republic House members who voted for impeachment. And many of the speeches uh, were full throat, full throat defenses of Trump. You guys, you Democrats, just hate him because you hate how well he did. And he, you know, peace in the middle and uh, tax cuts and judges and a great economy and all of that. The, the other thing, the more important thing, and by the way, I apologize for my internet. Connection. It is what it is. Um, you know, uh, is that that every time I uh, you hear about okay, one of these two parties going to break apart, for that since they, starting with 1860, that's 160 years. Um, two parties have been the only two parties that have produced president. And even when you've had enormous splits, when Teddy Roosevelt, uh, ex-president Roosevelt had to become president against the Progressive Party, when Charles Wallace ran third party in 1968 and won uh, five states, um, it still was temporary. And eventually the parties uh, came back. You know, just four years after 1976, Ronald Reagan took the nomination and wound up winning 44 states. And four hundred and forty something electoral votes. So uh, whether or not we're in a position now where you're gonna genuinely see a split in the sense of an alternative party rising, I'm skeptical. I do think what we're is um, more and more folks who represent the Trump leaving the kind of more traditional Republican, the voter, you know, the the chamber, of course. Kind of a, a one of the most contributors to the Republican Party has just said they are not giving any conscience to any Republican who voted to not certify the electoral votes. Now, for the for the Chamber of Commerce to break with the Republicans, so to, to paraphrase strongly, it's a little like Laszlo or Romano attack Pope. You just don't expect that to happen. Um, but and you are I think going to find some erosion uh, among the now. We think the Chamber of Commerce is going to really be happy with, say, Bernie Sanders as chair of the Budget Committee. Committee, uh, you think they're going to sign on for taxes on the wealthy and a couple of trillion dollars worth of stimulus? I'm I'm highly dubious.
0: So I've heard the argument that it's actually in Democrats' favor that Trump is eligible to run again. Um, to suck all the oxygen out of the room, similar to how he did in 2016. Um, And I I kind of see a scenario where there's a big will-he-won't-he phase uh, during the primary next time. And of course, you know, we're still recovering from 2020. Um, But do you see any validity in that argument um, that Trump not being convicted, not being prevented from holding high office again, uh, actually benefits the Democratic Party?
1: You know, if there's one thing we learned, uh, well, we should have learned that many, many elections ago, is just don't make these kinds of assumptions. When Trump was nominated, I don't know anybody except the guy who draws Dilbert, uh, who thought Trump, well, no, I take that back. I was at a, I was a fellow at the University of Chicago uh, when he started emerging, an Italian journalist said very early, Trump's going to win, and we all said, you're crazy, and she said, I was an idiot from Tony. I know how the, you know, the guy who was the same kind of Trump guy, he was constantly being accused of various sexual and political misdeeds. He was prime minister for 10 years. So if you imagine um, a Biden presidency that runs into serious economic trouble, um, and Trump's not convicted, so he's eligible to run again. The problem, I, I think, for the people who, who are skeptics is, so who runs against Trump after all these people, these wannabes, Cruz and Hawley and Nikki Haley and, I don't know, I guess Mike Pence uh, or whoever, they've, they've bound themselves to Trump. I think what McConnell was trying to do, and talked about earlier, was to sort of encourage the Republicans, it's okay to move away from this guy. He's, you know, he's blotted his copybook, as they say in Great Britain. He's, he's not, he's, this last thing has made him much less appealing, but anybody who writes off Donald Trump in 2024, uh, assuming he's not serving a prison sentence in New York State, because, you know, there's going to be very heavy artillery aimed at him from the Attorney General in New York and the, the DA in, in Manhattan, it may well be that the Justice Department has decided that um maybe you can't indict a president, but maybe you can indict an ex president. So if he's facing massive legal problems, uh yeah, I, I think it's much too early to say, oh he well, we can't possibly be president again.
0: So in the Senate, um right now, it seems as if the, the the drum beats are going towards a you know situation where Trump could potentially be convicted. Um I'm sorry. Oh, Go
1: ahead. We just talked about that.
0: know
1: Republican senators to convict them. It ain't going to happen unless, you know, McConnell goes 180 degrees the other way, we got to get rid of this guy. So right. I don't, I do not see, I should have, shouldn't have, you. that's my notion. Are people speculating there might be as many as Republicans to vote for conviction? And at that point, you're, you're at uh, 62 and you're still five short, but I'm sorry. I apologize for no. that. Why
0: don't you think Oh, and, and what I meant was that it's less certain um, than it was the first during the first impeachment, um, where he knew that he had unified Republican support. Um, but, you know, with folks like Mitt Romney, you know, Mitt Romney, was he was the sole Republican last time that uh, decided to uh, vote in favor. But uh, folks like Ben Sasse, um, Lisa Markowski saying she had enough, um, um, but-
1: I didn't hear, you're back you know, I'm sorry, you were, free, you were frozen there for a few minutes when you started the question.
0: Oh, sorry. Can you hear me now?
1: I can hear you. Okay. I don't know. You know, I thought this was going to work better than it is, but let's. Okay.
0: On. We're going to bear through it. <laughs> okay. But uh, I was just mentioning Mitt Romney, uh, Ben Sass, Lisa Markowski uh, recently, Miss Senator from Alaska saying she had enough. Um, but I, my question was about, you know, the next two years in terms of democratic control. Um, the assumption is that if the Democrats overreach, um, that's a positive thing for the Republicans for the midterms, uh, because if they're going to too much far on the left, um, they can go back to these traditionally conservative uh, communities and uh, and districts uh, that swung blue by a razor thin margin for Biden this time, and win those places back over to the GOP side. Um, do you agree, or do you think that you know the Democrats have a mandate they should go in with a kind of FDR style? emergency, let's get all the legislation we can uh, for now out the way, besides COVID relief.
1: I think it's a question of of being careful about what we mean by going left versus centrist. For instance, I think there's probably um, pretty broad uh, support for some kind of, of bold investment policy for infrastructure, for getting money out there, you you have some Republicans. I mean, Hawley was on this case uh, before we, he, you know, he got into all of this mess with the certification, saying he he, there's a problem with what's happened to blue-collar work and inequality and wages, and I think that's a uh, in fact an approach where you could go left economically. Uh, and not risk what you're talking about, not risk a backlash. The real backlash, I think, comes from things like identity politics. Um, After the November election, when Democrats lost 10 House seats, there was a very angry phone hookup among Republican, among Democrats members. Big, angry arguments between the centrists and folks like AOC, uh, who represent the progressives with she's so saying no, you you just didn't organize right. you know how to use the tools, and then say, no, if you can you cannot come into a district line and argue, with the police, it's poison. Uh, that may be a uh, a um, where you might conflict. Um, but I think there's a chance um, for Biden to say to, the, to at least part of blue-collar whites, uh, assuming that racism is not driving all of their voting, say, you know, you have been screwed by the system in terms of decent jobs. I want to see if we can get some of those. Uh, but you are right. In a 50-50 Senate, the most conservative Democrat, who's Joe Manchin from West Virginia, has a whole lot of power. You know he's already said, uh, forget court packing. I'm not gonna. I will not vote to expand the Supreme Court. Uh, and, and you're not gonna find, I think, any Republican who's going to sign on to that. So even though they have a 50-50 with Kamala Harris a majority, if one if one Democrat like Manchin says, uh, nope, not going to do it. And by the way, forget the legislative filibuster. Uh, um, He's not entirely against that, but he's very skeptical. And I do think that the Democrats are going to have to deal with the fact that, that um, with, a, with a guy like Manchin, with senators like John Tester from Montana, that's a very red state; he barely won last time. Cinema um, uh, and Mark Kelly, both from Arizona, relatively moderate Democrats. Yeah, there's going to have to be some very careful um, political strategizing to figure out how to keep that bare majority together.
0: So with the recent revelation of the PGA of America uh, dropping Trump uh, for the 2022 tournament and, um, you know, him being banned from Twitter, um, it seems as if he's not as stronger, he's not as strong um, a potential candidate as he would have been um, had this situation last week not happened. Um, In your mind, does this uh, further does this put more gasoline on the fire for those who feel as if this election has been rigged? Uh, Or do you think that this um, actually weakens him um, because he can no longer use the platform that he traditionally did for four years or five years since he was a candidate uh, to spew out these conspiracies, to whip up um, animosity and and anger at the system and the the deep state?
1: Well, to the first point, I mean, I think for Trump, losing the PGA is much worse than impeachment because he doesn't care about government or politics. But God, does he care about golf? And taking the PGA away from him is like, you know, I can't think of a worse fate for him. The the action of all of these companies uh, has triggered uh, among defenders a very strong pushback, saying this is the deep, this is the deep state in action. Just what we told you. Th- these are the big companies that the Democrats uh, get money from, and some of them. This is uh, Twitter, and it's Facebook, and it's Instagram, and it's you know they're doing this to silence Trump and um, his allies. And that argument's going to play. It- it's basically all Fox News was talking about, I think, in the in the last couple of days. Um, but it is also going to weaken him. And Trump had 88 million followers on Twitter. And it was his primary tool. It was a perfectly um, effective device because there were no mediating institutions. He didn't have to have somebody analyze it. I think that is going to, depending on how long this lasts, that's going to make him a little bit, uh, a little bit weaker. But I also think it's going to increase the belief on the part of Trump's most earnest supporters that this is a deep conspiracy by powerful uh, financial. Institutions. You know, one uh, was that um, Deutsche Bank, which has basically been the only bank won Trump's enterprise over the last several years, has said no more. Money. And Trump has got a lot of loans coming due in the next year. So you're right to point to these different places that make it more difficult to function in the coming years he used to, but it's also true that it may make him on the, on the part of his supporters a martyr. Look what look these what big shots done to him.
0: And in the same vein, you know, I was uh, looking at an ABC News uh, report, that, a 538 report that released that 52% of the American public are in favor of removal uh, of President Trump in light of the impeachment proceeding that happened today. Um, in addition, you know, going back to 1974 uh, during the Richard Nixon um, it, I guess, then ongoing impeachment before he resigned, uh, 57% um, approved of removal. Um, but in in retrospect, you know, since then, um, there's been more of a, a positive light uh, given to Nixon, knowing that, yes, he, Watergate happened, but he also reopened China. Um, he was behind a, a lot of initial po- uh, policies that, you know, Democrats support today, like the establishment of the Environmental Protection Agency, um, do you think that down the road, Trump's legacy will forever be marred, or do you think there is some kind of opening for folks to look at him in a more favorable light um, than they do right now?
1: That's a really good question, because there's like always a constant reappraisal of presidents, you know, it never stops. Um, when I was in college, Woodrow Wilson was kind of honored as the first progressive president and. <laughs> Over time, it turns out that, among other things, he was a stone-cold racist who segregated Washington, and, you know, his reputation has taken a a deserved uh, hit. Um, And, yeah, what what Bill Clinton said, I think, around Nixon's funeral, he said, you know, so you don't judge anybody by the worst days of their lives. Uh, Trump may be a challenge to that because there were many. But I notice in today's New York Times there is a piece about the economy that says Trump got this right. That is, he was the guy who said, you know, we don't have to have a lot of high unemployment to fight inflation. We can we can actually keep interest rates low, and there'll be a, at least till the pandemic, a relatively low unemployment and virtually no inflation. So I think you're going to see stuff like that when you can get past Trump's. Persona and his character and his temperament, and say, okay, well, let's take a deep breath and see what did they do. Now, there's going to be also some pretty harsh uh, judgments about, you know, his basic the basic destruction of the structure of government, uh, what he did to the to the environmental policies um, and and on regulation. But yeah, I mean, that's inevitable that as as people as the, the time fades. Um,
0: There'll be a reappraisal, and so um, you know, one thing I was thinking of since you know the Capitol building was stormed last week was that there seems to be now all of a sudden, you know, with only a few days left before Trump leaves office, bipartisan acknowledgement of wrongdoing uh, by Trump himself. Um, the, the, the The speakers on the House floor didn't seem to have a consistent message. More. Some were saying this is another gimmick to try to attack Trump. Some were saying we need unity. Um, someone else was saying this is hypocritical, uh, because you know, if you had called out more riot, riotous protesters like what they call Black Lives Matter and other groups, um, it wouldn't lead to what we experienced on the Capitol last week. Um, there was, you know, a, a wide array of arguments made uh, on the Republican side. But in terms of um, I guess what I'm asking is in terms of um you know, what we've seen so far in this presidency, Charlottesville, um, him saying, you know, calling countries like Haiti asshole countries, um, a Muslim ban, uh, bullying a Gold Star family, the comments he made about John McCain, um, the immigration policies where children who were locked in cages. All of these things uh, seem to warrant ha- to the level of, you know, deserving the same kind of outrage or, or bipartisan support. But what do you think made this one so special? Um, was it just the timing, uh, being that Biden's Just days away from being the next commander in chief, or do you think there was something more to that?
1: No, I think what made this different was the Capitol was sacked and we almost had a massacre there. I mean, it was a a level of shock that went through the whole system that we'd never seen before. You know, insulting John McCain and making racist or or homophobic or or misogynist statements is obnoxious. But we were in a situation here where, had that, there's this one. Capitol Police officer, Eugene Goodman, who literally saved him from a massacre. He goaded the riot, following him upstairs, away from the door, right onto the Senate floor. And had he not done that, um, I think you would have seen a number of dead senators. And they, if, you know, I'm not exaggerating. That's, that's a wholly different level of her. Uh, you can compare the show on that there, there was a, a march, there was, there was violence, there was a, a woman killed by a guy driving a car. But this, that event broadcast on live television, you know, uh, was, was, uh, was so jaw-dropping that you had a number of people say, uh, Trump supporters say, this, you know, the scales fell from my eyes. I didn't understand that, that he could be so reckless, uh, you know, and so just just so unbelievably uh, self-centered as to bring thousands of people to Washington. All he didn't say go go destroy the. Camp. set. He set the, the table for that. And I think that's a, a pretty different thing than the history that you recited. Look, any one of those things. When McCain was insulted by Trump, like the first day of his campaign, I said, "Well, that's it. He's finished. You can't, you can't do that, American hero." He's done. Well, no. And then when he he made the, when those Access Hollywood tapes came out, of what he had, what he said that he could do to women, you had the chairman of the committee saying, "How to get the ticket." He can't survive. We saw him survive four years. This was different. And it was literally blood on the floor and could have been an unthinkable catastrophe. Just a little bit different uh, scenario plan. So I think that explains a lot of why um even some of the people who voted against impeachment got up and said, I can't defend what Trump said. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, the the minority leader in the House, said uh, he bears responsibility. Um, and then you did have his all out defenders, the Jim Jordans, the Louis Gomez, you know, uh, who, you know, this is all about the deed, And the what about Hunter and what about Clinton's emails and what about all of that? But it did that to the party that nothing else had.
0: So Mr. Greenfield, if you were president-elect Biden, uh, going into uh, your first term as president, knowing that there's so many people out there who are um, who have who, who believe that your election was illegitimate, um, despite lack of evidence, um, and despite Trump's own court appointed judges throwing uh, a lot of these lawsuits out because they were meritless. Um, How how do you govern in this environment, even though you have a a razor-thin majority? um, How do you go forward um, and govern um, to get your message across to provide stability that people are yearning for, and to also set forth your agenda for the next four years um, in this kind of toxic environment?
1: I'm with an inaugural address, I'm going to try to... uh, uh, is very from the typical address, which sort of very flowery, all beauty. Look at our great and we'll move. You have to be, have to, to own that, if not everything to fear is fear itself, but in his speech, he laid out very clearly how dire the situation was and how important it was to take their own action. I think that from the, he has to strike a, Unity, he's got to say that because you have to say some of that to your president. But to say, you know, this is what we have to do now, and not do it in flowery rhetoric and say, one well, famous lines from uh, FDR's 1933 number was our primary purpose is to put people to work. And people understood, ah, and Biden almost has to be that direct. You know, we have got to keep people in their homes. We have got to not have evictions. We have, and and who suffered the most from this? You know, uh, the last jobs report was that I think there were 140,000 jobs lost. All of them by women, predominantly black and Latina. Um, now it's tricky to talk in 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 open, honest racial terms in this country. It's you know it's a it's a what Gunnar Myrtle called the American dilemma. But in this case, I think Biden can, can at least say, you know, the people who, who were least well off before this pandemic have suffered the most. And we've got to get help for them now. Um, and that's the kind of approach. It's, he, you know, people always, Winston Churchill, how he, he was the wartime leader of Great Britain. If you read Churchill's speeches, they are very, very blunt. And he always begins by telling you tough things are. You know, he, we had a horrible week last week. We had, or in Dunkirk, we had one of the worst military disasters in the history of Europe, because people believed that he that he was being straight with them, so that when he said, "Here's what we can do," they said, "Oh, okay. He's, there's, there's no BS going on here," and that's what I think Biden really has to do. Uh, he has he has to be, he has to be as blunt, and as clear, and he has to not talk quite so much as he
0: likes to. So Speaker Pelosi um, <clears throat> shortly before we went live uh, had released a statement indicating that uh, the investigation uh, trial cannot realistically uh, take place in a fast track pace before Biden gets into office. Um, but do you see that? Do you see a trial going on simultaneously during the, fir- the early days of a Biden presidency, actually uh, damaging uh, Biden's um, that's legislation?
1: A, that's a, that's, The $64,000 question, as they say, we know that the trial's not going to happen immediately. Uh, McConnell's already said not going to do that. But it is a fair question. It was the best case for not doing this was if, if what you just asked is relevant. How does Biden set the table early? Does he really want an impeachment trial to go on, say, 30 days into his administration? You know? Tough. I know we're live, Michael. I think we
0: need to, need to wrap up another five or ten minutes if we could because I've got a deadline, okay? Sure, definitely, definitely. Um, and so in the last, you know, wrapping up here, um, you know, I want to pivot a little bit to your book, If Kennedy Lived. A uh, very interesting book. Um, so much to dive into, but specifically I wanted to get into the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, because you indicated uh, that, you know, that period really changed Kennedy as a candidate. He campaigned in 1960 as a hawk, um, but came out of, that you know, that, that brief, Brush with uh, potential nuclear war with the Soviet Union, uh, with a newfound uh, perspective on foreign policy, um, in the book that Bob Woodward has written, Rage, he indicated that during September 25th, uh, the U.S. command flew a simulated air attack, sending B-1 bombers and some 20 other planes, and this is during the 2017 uh, year, um, and you know this back and forth between nuclear testing. Uh, really coming close to the coastal lines of both North Korea and United States uh, really brought uh, us to the brink of nuclear war, even though the public was not really aware of the extent of how much this testing was going on. Trump himself had said we were really close, according to Bob Woodward, uh, and he seemed to be a little shaken by that. Do you see any similarities uh, in the way both men came out of these situations? Um, Do you see Trump changing
1: I can't speak to the Trump thing at all. I just can't. so let me take the question in somewhat direction. Um once the after the Cuban Missile Crisis, I think Kennedy was a base change guy. Um he had he had, had skepticism about the military, all the way going back to a uh, pig. But when he heard of you know, people like Curtis Lemay and Chief basically to take out the missile, don't worry about it, and realize that we they could put a nuclear war, came out of that with much more skepticism about military and uh, a kind that we've got to pull back which is why in june of 1963 he made a speech at a university saying we've got to we've got to do something this cold war we can't gamble with the lives of millions that's why he signed the test ban treaty and in my book what i expect is he would have found a way not to escalate the war in vietnam He would not have relied on the military saying, oh, don't worry. We just need 100,000 more troops and we'll take care of this. He had been so burned by them, and he knew that area, having gone there as a young man, that he said, no, I've got to find some way to get out of this. But politically, it's tricky. Um, What you are talking about is that that there have been any number of times when we've come very close to accidental nuclear war, missile crisis, the, the incident with Trump. There were cases where a, a Soviet um, military guy mistook a geese for incoming U.S. bombers and was getting ready to send the signal. And then said, well, maybe I better take a beat. A beat. So, you know, we've, we've had a lot of those close calls, unfortunately.
0: On, my last question for the night here. Um, do you, you know, you, you had described that both Bobby and Jack Kennedy were – really cautious about a particular candidate in 64. It wasn't Goldwater, uh, but it was Mitt Romney's father, George Romney, uh, because he represented someone in the Midwest, Uh, uh, yeah, he was a Midwest governor. Um, He was not a Catholic, he was a, I think he was an evangelical, or no, he was a Mormon, yeah, Mormon. Um, He was someone that appealed to a lot of African-Americans. I think he was gonna eat away at Jack Kennedy's uh, African-American support. being that he specifically fit those kind of criteria, are there any candidates now, even in this this early period, uh, that you think would demographically, uh, politically, um, serve as Biden's uh, worst nightmare as a candidate as a p- potential opponent? Uh,
1: you know, I just think it's off early, um, and also you're still going to have to deal with the fallout of of, of January 6th and how Trump emerges. Um, if you're assuming that Trump disappears as a candidate, um, one thing I do think is that the, the there are very popular Republican governors uh, in Massachusetts, in Vermont, in Maryland, but there's not a chance in the world that they could be the nominee because they're all pro-choice, and that's just off the tape. Uh, and there's this fantasy... You Know that, yeah, that's if they only have a moderate Republican, the Republican Party is not, they may not nominate a trumper, but they're not nominating a moderate, it's just not the case. So, if you live them out, I'll tell you one person who in kind of a little intrigues me. Uh, I haven't been thought, thinking about this, but I appreciate your question because now I have to think about this. Is Tim Scott, senator from South Carolina, just a you know, he's been elected to two terms. Uh, he is the he was the first. Black from black senator from the South since Reconstruction, he's a conservative Republican. Uh, he is not a kind of Trump, you know, QAnon, whatever. And yeah, I would think that the Republican Party nominating a you know a, a uh, African American, given the fact that Biden owes his presidency, in every sense, to the African American vote, started in South Carolina, and then just take a look at the state he carried, you know. I'll leave with you with this, a total of 42,000 votes in three states, uh, Georgia, Wisconsin, and I think Nevada, is all that's separate this election from an electoral tie going into the House. 42,000 out of 160 million. Uh, do I think that Tim Scott could con- conceivably eat into enough of Biden's African-American support? And not just, but also among, you know, the kind of uh, white-collar college graduate republicans who fled from so thank you this was you know that i should probably send you a little money if i write this and i get paid for this michael that's a really interesting that's a, and i apologize again for the um internet connections we soldiered on mostly and uh i also have to say i'm pretty damn impressed that uh, a guy who's still in law school uh is pulling together a podcast like this That's why i agreed to come on i thought you know, I, I don't know. I won't be around in 25 or 30 years, but I have a chance you will be in a way that people will notice. So thank you for having me and most best of luck to you,
0: Mr. Greenfield. Thank you. It's been an honor, sir. I just want to thank you again for joining the political mic. It's been truly a pleasure to, to talk politics with you. But being said I'm going to go ahead and conclude uh, this podcast, uh, episode 25 of the political mic. Thank you and have a good night. Okay.